0: hepatobiliary cancer the final frontier these are the voyages of the starship medical oncology its continuing mission to explore strange new targets to seek out new therapies. To boldly go where no chemo has gone before.
1: <laughs> I, that. Mike,
0: Michael, I don't know what you're doing, but
1: I love it. And if anyone didn't think we were nerds before, they definitely know that we truly are.
0: Absolutely, that—that that, I will have you know—was Chief Scientist Spock, as famously portrayed by Richard Nixon, um, providing his insight into the difficult journey of treatments of our topic today: the double header of biliary tract and hepatocellular carcinomas. So, unfortunately, Richard Nixon is not here in the booth with us. It's just me, Michael, and Josh, as always, and uh, we're going to take you on a Trekkian type journey. Uh, through these two very difficult-to-treat cancers.
1: Leonard and Nemo would definitely be proud of what just happened. Uh, I'm sure
0: your... they're both rolling in their graves right now. Peacefully, peacefully Peace. rolling. Peacefully ro- rolling in their graves. I was going to do a Sir Patrick Stewart, but then I thought he might actually take offence to it. Um <laughs> Well, he is alive, so yes, I think he. Yes, would.
1: I might. Yeah. I might just get the ball rolling and start. Yes, so um,
0: so um, Josh, take it away with um, with cholangiocarcinoma before we before this uh, uh, episode spirals completely out of control. Yeah, we don't actually talk about
1: mm, oncology at all. So
0: no, I'm going
1: to talk a bit about the biliary tract cancers. So it's a pretty heterogeneous group of cancers, which include your extrahepatic and intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. Gallbladder cancers and pull cancers. So it's it's difficult to really go through all of these with justice. So I'm going to try and group them and talk mostly about cholangiocarcinomas today. Now, these cancers, all of them, really are diagnosed generally at a late stage. They have terrible prognoses and usually surgical removal surgical excision is just never an answer because it's encasing important vessels, it's spread beyond the local area, and that's just unfortunately the reality that we have at present. Now, over the past decade, multiple trials have happened. So this includes drugs which I've never heard of, and Michael, maybe you have, but c- Cedirinib. Have you ever yep. heard of Cedirinib? Nope, never heard of that. Nope. Okay, cool. There's not just me. Elotinib, cetuximab, Panitumumab, Ramicirumab, and mis- uh, Meristinib are just multiple trials of these drugs, and none of them have shown in improved overall survival, improved progression-free survival, and the standard of care hasn't changed since cisplatinine and gemcitabine, and we still use this as a backbone today.
0: It really does seem like it's the sort of cancer that just... Um... Uh, every, they're throwing p- everything at at it and seeing if it works. And it's really been difficult to have a, a therapy that has a benefit.
1: A hundred percent. And because a lot of these patients present so advanced, they are very unwell. So you can't just be ha- having, I'll start chemo, see how they respond. They're at a point where they're in hospital, they have obstructed gallbladders or obstructed livers and they need surgical intervention and they need months sort of recovery from that. Now, median overall survival, Mikey. What do you think for uh, biliary tract cancers or cholangio
0: with treatment? Well, you've painted a very, very grim picture, Josh. So uh, I would have to say somewhere in the realm of short to medium months, three to six months thereabouts.
1: Generally, eleven point seven months. So maybe I painted too oh. too bad a picture, but it's still pretty terrible.
0: Yes, and twenty-four.
1: Yeah, the twenty-four month survival rate is like fifteen point seven percent. So we need new therapies. That's the summary. When we talk about cholangiocarcinoma specifically, the nomenclature has changed slightly depending where you live in the world. But usually, they arise from epithelial cells of the intrahepatic or extrahepatic bile ducts. Highly lethal due to advanced presentation, as I've mentioned, and what they've now more recently be classified as, it really includes sort of bile duct cancers from intrahepatic, perihilar and distal biliary treat. Now, epidemiology, it's about 3% of GI malignancies. And in the US of A, there's about 41,000 primary liver and intrahepatic bile duct cancers diagnosed annually and about another 12,000 that extrahepatic. Now... One of the other interesting things is that this has increased over the last 30 years, but that's also to be expected with better screening, better CT, tomography, those sorts of things, and we can actually pick these up. There's interesting risk factors, which I think we should discuss here today, Michael. Uh, what are your thoughts as some risk factors for the, this GI malignancy?
0: I'm going to pick at the low-hanging fruit here, Josh, and say smoking.
1: Everything is with smoking.
0: So that's a very safe
1: guess. And anything else that going back to your physician days when you were sitting your final exams?
0: Oh, gosh, that was so long ago. Um... <laughs> but not far enough, but not, not far enough. No, I still have a vague recollection of it. Um, I'm going to have to press pass on this one. Josh, could you please illuminate us with your superior knowledge?
1: Yeah, no, that's fine. I had to refresh my own memory, but primary sclerosing cholangitis is one of those really big uh, factors course. that you mentioned. Other things, so liver flukes, if you live in Thailand, so if you've got a Thai patient, that's something to really think about. Uh, and there's a strong association between intrahepatic stone disease and cholangia, which I never knew about. The other common ones, although not strongly associated, meaning there's not randomized controlled trials looking at it, that sort of prospective stuff, but elevated blood sugar levels, obesity, and metabolic syndrome. Uh, as expected with most cancers, obesity can influence direction of patients' health. Now, histology, the majority of the cholangiocarcinomas are adenocarcinoma, with squamous cell carcinomas being responsible for most of the remaining cases what is interesting though and this is probably the more important bit is the biology of these cancers so a lot of them do have immunogenic features including uh, ic molecules pdl1 ctla all those sorts of things which we have discussed previously in our podcast and there's a strong tumor microenvironment so early studies have demonstrated clinical activity in biliary tract cancers including devalimab, a pdl1 inhibitor and that's what i'm going to be talking about today surprise now Chemo has immunomodulatory effects in multiple cancers. So what that means is that it changes the tumor microenvironment and actually improves the efficacy of these pd one inhibitors, these CTLA-4 inhibitors, and make the cancers more susceptible to these extra drugs. So the question that these really smart people who develop these trials do, uh, had was, if you add immunotherapy to the chemo, could it improve the outcome versus chemo alone in tract cancers? stay tuned to find out after these ads no no there's no ads but after after the brief (laughs) pause so this trial is called topaz1 which is an amazing name and it is a practice changing trial
0: i was going to say a a fairly recent trial as well i uh, i only first heard about it earlier this year
1: yeah really recent so they were collecting patients from 2019 to 2020 it was a randomized double line global phase 3 trial. It was a, it was looking at the safety and ecof- efficacy of Devalumab plus gemcitabine and cisplatin, which is that backbone I mentioned previously, versus the placebo, which is just the chemotherapy. This is first-line treatment in patients with advanced biliary tract cancers. They were randomized as a 1 to 1, which is great, and they screened 914 patients and of interest, only 685 patients were randomly assigned to treatment. Michael, do you know why
0: Gosh, you're really coming at me with the questions this time, Josh. Uh, I am guessing that a significant proportion of them may have either progressed or they might have had autoimmune causes of their uh, cholangiocarcinoma. I'm guessing
1: they probably progressed and weren't well enough to have it, but I haven't read that in the trial, but that's just my suspicion. With the demographics, what we do note is that uh, there's a significant Agent population in this particular trial, which is great because it's quite common there. ECOG performance status of zero, about half of the patients as well. And it was divided, probably half of the patients had intrahepatic cholangio, 20% had extrahepatic, and the remaining 25% had gallbladder cancer. They also stratified patients according to PDL1 expression of less than 1% or greater than or equal to 1%. I'm going to cut to the chase and talk about the first cutoff so first cutoff was done at 16.8 months of follow-up and what they found and this is a sad statistic is that 58.1 of the patients in the derva group so devalumab had died and 65.7 percent in the placebo group had died but the nice thing of this trial is that it was statistically significant so patients who got the immunotherapy had a higher chance of responding and continuing to respond to this treatment than those that just had chemo with a hazard ratio of 0.8% that with a p-value of 0.021. So median overall survival was 12.8 months in the Derva group and 11.5 months in the chemo group. You might be like, Josh, that's only a month and, you know, one and, one and a bit months, but that's actually significant in this population cohort.
0: Yeah, it sort of speaks to how grim this disease is though that, and how difficult as you mentioned it has been to treat that this small but significant benefit is still hailed as a breakthrough well a huge breakthrough
1: and the best part is that this is only a interim follow-up of 16 months i want to see the two-year follow-up the three-year follow-up because we we should see that hazard ratio get wider i suspect there will be patients who i'm going to assume continue to respond
0: continue to respond yeah
1: Exactly. And so the Kaplan-Meier curves, it will be in the link in the bio of this trial, actually shows that the the two arms do start to deviate, probably at that six-month mark. You can see before the six-month mark, the chemo, interesting enough, the chemo arm is slightly better. Uh, And I I wonder whether just it was a cohort of patients we need more study, more follow-up to sort of see, but you can see there is definite divergence of those curves. Moving on estimated overall survival rates at the 12 month the 18 month and the 24 months so at the 24 month the estimated overall survival was about 25 percent in the intervention arm and 10 percent in the control arm so that's that's good you know that's, that's showing that there's a significant response now complete response you actually see some complete response in the intervention arm so about seven patients uh, versus two patients in the control arm had a complete response with their disease or 2.1% versus 0.6%. Small numbers, but still realistic numbers. And if you look at people that had a partial response, it was 24.6 versus 18.1%. And disease control was seen in 85% of the intervention and 82% of the control arm. I've already sort of Blown, blown my whistle and given the really good result of overall survival at 24 months or predicted. But what was interesting is that the PDL1 expression of less than 1%. So, so it's it's a hard one. When you're looking at the forest plots, it looks like everything crosses that that midline. But I think we need some more time to really identify whether PDL1 expression does influence outcomes. And if I had a patient today and this was an option, I would definitely apply to give the Devalimab based on the current stats and really the limited toxicities in what is a really dire cancer.
0: So Josh, are we able to get uh, Devalimab in Australia for this indication at the moment? I'm so glad you asked, but before I Give you the answer to that i
1: didn't talk about pfs but pfs was also statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.75 and a p-value of 0.01 which is a difference of about two and a half months or a bit under two months actually so going to your question yes you can there is in australia there is currently an access program through the parent company that does produce this drug and they're looking there i don't know if they're looking but there are definitely options available because Divalumab off. The PBS in Australia, this is the one we have, this is how we fund our drugs, is about $13,000. So if you respond, that's a lot of money ongoing.
0: Mm. And um, I guess there, we don't know yet, but was there a sort of a time limit for um, the development? Because we know in other cancers we cap the uh, administration of immunotherapy to two years? I guess we haven't gotten there yet, but was there anything in the protocol that you saw or is it sort of just Devalumab, give it as long as as long as we can?
1: You know, that is a really, really good question. I don't know. I'd have to go through the trial again to actually see, but I'm going to take a hedge and say either one or two years I'd be offered the, the derva.
0: It might also be a case where there are so few patients who make it or a few patients that make it to that, Stage and they just don't know, so it might just be a. Here we have a bunch of patients at two years. We'll just keep on giving them the drug.
1: Yeah, I think so, and I know this is a bit of a bit of a brief trial today. Normally we kind of yak on again and again, but I really we are
0: to... a couple of yakkers. We're
1: yakkers. Uh, I wanted to just highlight that this this drug is available, and if you have anyone who's good enough performance wise and well enough to go on this treatment, please do try and sort of reach out to the drug company to see whether or not they would help fund it or maybe the patient can self-fund it because it looks like the early early stats, although not a hard bar to reach, have definitely shown PFS and OS survival. And if you're looking at drug toxicities, which is something that everyone wants to know about, it's going to be very similar to that of any other immunotherapy trial you get. So any great adverse events of the intervention arm was 92% or 929 versus 90.1%. And serious was about 15% in the intervention and 17% in the control. So more people in the control actually had worse side effects than those in the intervention arm. So really shows that the uh, drug does not cause that many ongoing toxicities.
0: And Josh, one more question. Because, question. Uh, because we're, we're engaged in a furious tennis match here of questions. Uh, we are. I like giving them, not receiving them. Did the trial? I'm I'm guessing the trial excluded patients with a past history of autoimmune disease because, as you mentioned in your uh, PBS, not PBS, your uh, physician's exam level uh, question with regards to causes of biliary tract cancer, a lot of these patients will have primary sclerosis cholangitis, primary biliary cirrhosis, and those often go hand in hand with other autoimmune conditions like autoimmune hepatitis. I'm saying this because I had a patient earlier this year who did have that horrible cornucopia of autoimmune diseases. And mm-hmm. when I sat him down to talk, talk talk to him about treatment, this was actually when I first heard about Topaz, The there was absolutely no way I was going to give him Derva, because he had all of these issues. So, but were those patients excluded from the trial?
1: Unfortunately, they were. So, if they had documented autoimmune inflammatory disorders or known allergy or hypersensitivity to any study treatment, they were excluded. And if they'd had prior immunotherapy, but likely these guys probably hadn't had prior immunotherapy just based on the fact it was first line or you were supposed to be first line.
0: Yeah, definitely. But I think that's a area of subtlety that might mean that a proportion of the patients who you see, particularly younger patients who present to you with cholangiocarcinoma, you may not be able to safely give them devalumab or, you know, in close consultant, in consultation with a, with a hepatologist. And if you're desperate, very closely monitor them, but you, we don't really have evidence that points to a benefit for the, those particular patients if we're going by the, the letter of the study. Hundred percent.
1: I feel like I talk a lot more normally about my trials and today for some reason I've just smashed through it and I, I don't know why. But the important thing is immunotherapy is going to become the backbone to a lot of these cancers. There's a huge amount of research looking at the microenvironment. Michael, do you know much I, I've been reading a little bit about the microenvironment and its influences on, you know, targeted therapy, chemotherapy, and even immunotherapy. Have you done much investigation into the space?
0: I must confess, I haven't very much, Josh. Yeah. So well, I... <laughs> Please, please, uh, uh, please tell me all of your all of your knowledge that you have uh, gained over the past twenty minutes. No, look, I'm going to say twenty three minutes, and it's wisdom, not just knowledge. No, oh, uh... I'm I'm terribly sorry, I'm, I'm underselling you there by three whole minutes. <laughs> three minutes.
1: No, the, the, so, what I was reading earlier today was there's a lot of interest in. We're in the targeted therapy field, there's some interest looking at targeted therapies, how they attach to cells, the microenvironment around the cell, and if you can stop the cells from essentially absorbing the targeted therapy, it can improve the efficacy of that drug. So they're looking at adding other drugs to really stabilize that microenvironment and make it more homogeneous by making things homogeneous and equal expression of, let's say, whatever the targeted therapy is potentially it can improve the efficacy and outcomes of these trials while decreasing their toxicity as well. So it's a really cool and interesting field that I think will very much reintroduce new drugs and old drugs and their usages in the oncology sphere.
0: I think that's sort of where we're headed with a lot of these drugs. I think that we have we have the technology to use another outdated sci-fi reference, but a lot of the current research is looking at applying older drugs in new ways or, or new environments, as you say. And so it might be the case that it's the, the next body of research is variations on a theme rather than uh, trailblazing new, new types of targets and drugs.
1: Exactly. That's exactly it, Michael. And
0: I'll uh, show you Richard.
1: Miss, mr nixon would you would you like to maybe move <laughs> on to your, your
0: mr president to you young man
1: <laughs> Very very good mr president would you like to maybe talk about your cancer and a little brief introduction
0: you've got to stop enabling me because i will take any opportunity to break out into a, a vaguely uh, appropriated voice um <laughs> so jumping from one sort of uh, grim cancer to another i guess uh, josh's very vividly outlined that biliary cancer is is a very poor uh, cancer to have in terms of prognosis treatment options. The other cancer in this sort of area is hepatocellular carcinoma. And much like cholangiocarcinoma, there have been a number of studies that have looked at different agents, different chemotherapies. And really, the standard of care has been a a fairly old uh, tyros- a multi-kinase inhibitor by the name of serafinib. And that's been the standard of care for a very, very long time. And it's a case where very few things that have been compared to serafinib have been able to beat it. Uh, one of the contenders was lenvatinib, which we won't talk about in any great depth of, uh, in, in this episode. We might in a later episode. But hepatocellular cancer is another one of these what we call orphan cancers, where there's not really much out there and potentially as a sort of feedback loop, there's less research going into it because there haven't been targets. So drug companies who invest millions and millions of dollars into developing these drugs, they're not actually guaranteed a benefit and therefore not really guaranteed a slice of pie.
1: That's exactly it. And to add to how old this trial was, serafinib was introduced in 2008. That was the NEGEM article. It showed it had improved PFS and OS, and it was only three months.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 2008 is is ancient Rome by oncology standards. Like It, it is a very long time when you look at all of the things that have come and gone or, or come in the inter- intervening, what is it, 14 years. Yeah,
1: exactly, and th- the leaps and bounds made by other cancer types, it's not three months, it's years
0: yeah absolutely you, you look at the difference as we have uh, in a previous episode stealth plug uh in melanoma uh the difference between 2008 and 2022 it's it's like night and day anyway a little bit of background on hepatocellular carcinoma as the name implies it's a primary liver cancer that develops usually in the setting of chronic liver disease It is more common than I was expecting, actually, Uh, approximately 850,000 cases worldwide in 2018 alone. And interestingly, in terms of demographic spread, about 72% of these are estimated to occur in Asia, the highest rates in Mongolia and China. Oh, explain why, explain why. Uh, I don't think I don't know that there is an explanation to explain. Uh, oh to shame! <laughs> I I know I know. Um, I'm sure very smart epidemiologists have had a look at it, but I don't uh, I don't have a good explanation for that. I thought you were about to like launch
1: into it, and then I was going to be like, "This is cool." I I don't know.
0: No, no. I, but there is this sort of trend in the hepatobiliary. Setting and you mentioned it briefly with uh, with your cholangiocarcinoma that uh, there does seem to be a significantly higher rate of these diseases in in Asian countries. Um, so hepatocellular carcinoma follows that trend, as one would expect for a cancer affecting such a vital organ as the liver. The uh, worldwide uh, mortality from uh hepatocellular carcinoma in 2018 was 780,000 making it the third most common cause of cancer related mortality so it's beating out yeah it's it's beating out uh probably melanoma pancreatic cancer colorectal cancer i i I would say that uh the two ones that beat it i don't have their stats with me but i would say the ones that beat it were lung cancer and potentially breast cancer which are obviously much more common worldwide
1: but it's not it's not something you want to be the top third. do you want to be you don't want to be third in this race? That's a very
0: No, no, you, you very much want to be avoiding the the podium uh, uh, in, in this sort of race. Uh, it, so hepatocellular carcinoma affects men three times more commonly than women. Again, there's there's explanations but nothing has really uh, conclusively been proven uh, as to the cause of this. and it's especially prevalent in patients with cirrhosis or chronic hepatitis B. It's estimated that one third of patients with liver cirrhosis will develop HCC in their lifetime. And this is why in Australia, at least, there's protocols for ultrasound-based monitoring of HCC for patients with cirrhosis. You
1: mentioned hepatitis B, which I think is really interesting. I thought in a lot of Asian countries, at least going back 15 years, the public health push to vaccinate people with hepatitis B wasn't there. Is that maybe an association that's the reason why we have such high levels in Asia?
0: It could be, but that doesn't explain, for example, why the the rates are not as high in places such as Africa or South America, where I would imagine the push is similarly, uh, I don't want to use the word lacking, but potentially unavailable. The resources aren't there. Mm-hmm. So, it, 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 it is a potential explanation, I guess, uh, but it doesn't explain why it's it's so concentrated in in Mongolia and, and China. Very true. Hepatocellular carcinoma accounts for approximately seventy five percent of primary liver tumors, and the remainder, the, the majority of the remainder, are cholangiocarcinomas. What Josh mentioned, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. Uh, early stage cancer is treatable by resection liver transplantation or ablation and it's at this point that i should probably mention the barcelona uh, liver um, cancer staging which is a very very complex and very different staging system to the usual tnm staging that we use for cancers and that's because it takes into account the degree of liver cirrhosis using the child pew score uh, the uh, degree of portal invasion, portal hypertension, uh, as well as uh, various other factors that I won't go into, but we will include a link to a algorithm uh, in the episode description. Suffice it to say that when you have uh, Barcelona stage A and B, you can use uh, stage A, you can use things like liver transplants as a curative rate or a curative therapy. Stage B, where the hepatocellular carcinoma is a little bit more uh, widespread, you can use things like taste or uh, ablation, and it's really when you get to stage C, stage C or stage D that you start to look at systemic therapy. So coming back to uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, they have a very poor prognosis when they get to this Barcelona stage C or stage D. Uh, the previous standard of care, as mentioned, was sorafenib way back in two thousand and eighteen these the serafinib does have significant side effects. Common side effects include diarrhea, cytopenias, mucositis, hand-foot syndrome, and hypertension. So it's not without its toxicities. Which brings us neatly to the study IMBRAVE-150. It's one of these atezo, uh, atezolizumab trials where they insist on having IM and then some word. We have IMBRAVE, IMPOWER, IMVIGOR, uh it's it's not quite topaz in terms of its catchiness, but it's at least distinct.
1: I, re- I really like it. I think it's better than the keynote. A keynote, like, every, there's, like, 800 keynote trials. And at least in Brave, there's not, like, 800 equivalents. So you're like, I don't know what number it is. Keynote 189, <laughs> keynote 776. Like, I'm not going to remember.
0: Yeah, well, you make a good point. Uh, I don't know where they got the number 150 from because they're all, uh, all of these trials are 150 or 133. Uh, Maybe they hide the ones that are bad. <laughs> but it's not like there are 150 in BRAVE trials as you said true a- anyway so imbrave was a comparison of atezolizumab which is a pdl1 inhibitor and bevacizumab which is a uh, VEGF inhibitor and it was comparing those with a standard of kesorafenib it enrolled patients with unresectable or metastatic disease they were ecog zero to one so functionally very fit and they had a child pu score of a And both of these things are potential areas of limitation to this study that I'll come to in a bit. Exclusion criteria, as mentioned uh, with the uh, Topaz trial, autoimmune disease was uh, an exclusion criteria, so anyone with autoimmune hepatitis and cirrhosis and HCC from that was excluded. Admittedly, probably a small proportion of our our patients with HCC, uh, but no less significant for that. Patients who had co-infection or untreated hepatitis B or C, which is very important, so you can't have hepatitis B or hepatitis C uh, and get on this trial.
1: Can I can I ask the question? Would that? I don't think that still holds true for hepatitis C, given it's so curable, and even hepatitis B with a teka to control it. Would you exclude your patient from potentially giving this? I know we haven't talked about the result, but if theoretically teaser is better than of a care, which I think our listeners can probably guess where we're heading,
0: which our listeners will ha- will have to have to listen to the whole episode. We can't spoil it right at the start. Got to no, along a little bit. Yeah well,
1: would 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 you treat would treat the patient? Because I probably would.
0: I think practically you would, and I think that you would have to at very least co-treat them. I think practically speaking, you would have them on something. Uh especially if it's hepatitis C and you can cure it fairly quote-unquote easily. So, But nevertheless, it was an exclusion criteria, Uh, and I'm not really sure why. Perhaps it was because the patients with serafinib, they're at risk of cytopenias and you might not want to risk reactivation. Uh, And so in the serafinib era, you might have needed to treat uh, antecedent viruses beforehand. But I think you make a very good point. We know that Atezo, atezolizumab and bevacizumab is not immunosuppressive in the same way as something like serafinib is. So you can probably get away with enrolling these patients or starting them on trial on uh, treatment sooner, at very least while you're co-administering a anti-hepatitis um, therapy. The other thing it could be down to is drug interactions. We can't ignore the possibility of Entecavir or all of the other VIRs that escape my uh, memory at this point. I once knew them all. Uh, interacting with a atezolizumab or bevacizumab or simply the study uh, coordinators not knowing because this is an experimental treatment. Other Exclusion criteria, getting back on track, thank you Josh, uh, was included untreated or incompletely treated gastric or gastroesophageal varices, which were deemed to be actively bleeding or at a high risk of bleeding. So again, a very important consideration to have. And when we come to the side effects, it will become abundantly clear why this was an important consideration. So for Hepatocellular carcinoma, uh, when I looked at those uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria, I thought there's no way you're getting a decent number of patients with hepatocellular carcinoma that have child PUA cirrhosis as opposed to B or C and are a decent ECOG status. But, hey, they managed to scrape together 501 patients at 111 sites in 17 countries. So they've done a good job. They've done a very good job with uh, with recruitment. Mm. Josh, is, Josh is not convinced, I, ladies I, and I- gentlemen.
1: I'm dubious. Look, I, I don't run this trial, but most of my patients have some form of cirrhosis, especially if they've been affected for a very long time. So I wonder if maybe they were just very early stage because there's a lots of ways to assess if someone has cirrhosis so that if they do it a certain way, it might not actually be picked up.
0: Well, they could have had child PUA cirrhosis. Yeah. Um, well, they had to in order to get onto the trial. Um, but let's face it. The majority of cases that I've seen, and probably the same with you, Josh, of patients who come to us nowadays looking for a atezolizumab and bevacizumab because, spoiler alert, it is a standard of care. Um, what? Uh, <laughs> they, they do tend to have um, uh, more severe disease. Uh, it, it tends to be child ub or Child uc by the time they get to this stage. And again, yeah, as yeah. a result, their ECOG status tends to suffer. But you still treat them, realistically. You don't have another option. No, you don't you don't really have another option exactly. But anyway, um, so there are a couple of things I really like about this trial. Number one, the patients said so there were a decent number of patients. It was randomized in a two to one ratio, which I think, as we've said on this podcast before, generally means that the investigators were pretty confident that atezolizumab and bevacizumab was going to be better than serafinib. And they just wanted to uh, make it more appealing to To patients to get on the trial. Maybe that's how they got the 501 patients in the first place. You're twice as likely to get this newfangled immune therapy than the old tablets. The other thing I like about this trial is treatment was continued until unacceptable toxicity or loss of clinical benefit. So patients could actually continue on atezobev beyond progression, beyond radiological progression, if the clinician observed evidence of clinical benefit, which is very much what tends to happen in clinical practice. If a patient is tolerating treatment well, if they're doing well, if they're functionally good, sometimes um, we do try and continue treatment beyond uh, clinical benefit. It's a bit more restricted in Australia where you you, you have to swear up and down that the patient hasn't progressed, on this treatment to continue getting funded by the um, PBS, but in practical settings and in less with less restrictive therapeutics, we sometimes do continue uh, treatment beyond progress- progression of disease if the patient is getting a clinical benefit. So I thought that made it a little more relevant to standard sort of clinical practice as opposed to the weird and wonderful world that is the land of trials. Patients um, who either temporarily or permanently discontinued one agent could also continue on the other if it was thought there was a benefit so say you have a really bad immune mediated side effect you could continue on the bev for what that does you while even though you stop the atezo so it's not an all or nothing thing so there's a little bit of flexibility in the trial um uh trial structure which i thought was good and made it a little bit more real to life uh endpoints the co-primary endpoints were overall survival and progression free survival standard standard stuff And secondary endpoints were the overall response rate, the duration of response, and again, secondary endpoints that I really like, the time to deterioration of quality of life, physical function, and role function, so occupation, which was uh, assessed using the European Organisation for Research and Treatment of Cancer, the EORTC, their quality of life questionnaire, hyphen C30. Uh, which is a very a very commonly used quality of life questionnaire in, in clinical trials. So there is a real holistic approach to the sorts of things that can go wrong with hep- uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. It's not just the disease-related stuff. It's the quality of life. It's the r- loss of function. And this really does reflect what we see a lot of in uh, hepatocellular carcinoma in patients afflicted by it. I won't get too much into the demographics because I've already taken up whatever time Josh has saved on his very succinct summary of his, of, of Topaz. The important uh, points, but... Michael. It's the important points. It's the important points. It's the important points. Uh, the But I will just mention the majority of patients in terms of their ant- antecedent cause of HCC, majority of patients it was deemed to be hepatitis B, 49% in the bev group and 46% in the control group.
1: I had one other question. When, with the demographics, and you said, I think it was a multi-site trial, did they mention the countries which they recruited from primarily?
0: Uh, They did in the uh, supplementary uh, appendix, which I didn't have a look at, but I can say that 40% of patients were from Asian countries that excluded Japan. So mainland, they were from mainland Asia. 60% were from the rest of the world. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So in terms of the results, let's just crack right along. Uh, the median overall survival, and this is from an update from last year, was 19.2 months in the bev group versus 13.4 months in the serafinib group. So hazard ratio of 0.66. More than half of patients in the bev group made it to 18 months. Progression-free survival, these numbers are all, always going to be smaller, but it was six point eight months in the atezo bev group versus four point three months in the sorafenib group. But again, more than half of patients in uh, in the atezo bev group made it to uh, made it to six months in terms of progression free survival. Uh, over over a quarter of patients in the atezo bev group uh, had a response. 5.5% of patients had a complete response, which for hepatocellular carcinoma is just astounding, much like cholangio. Interestingly, by comparison, zero patients, 0.0% of patients in the seraphinib group had a complete response.
1: The only thing worse than that is when the drug actually does harm.
0: When it actually accelerates the cancer, exactly. <laughs> which which
1: don't, don't worry, the drugs that we give do not accelerate cancer.
0: No, no, that's kind of the opposite of what we go for in oncology. In terms of the quality of life data, the time to deterioration in quality of life in the Atezobev group was 11.2 months versus 3.6 months in the serafinib group. So patients are not only surviving longer, but they're maintaining their quality of life for a lot longer.
1: It's really interesting. So overall survival, you were saying. Sorry, you did give the stats like ten seconds ago. It was what seventeen point thirteen months, right? Seventeen approximately. It's about four months. I mean,
0: already. it was it was nineteen, Josh. But don't worry, I'm only mild, my feelings are only mildly hurt that you're not listening. That's okay.
1: I am. I am. It's just the the, the percentages, but it's, it's interesting that the quality of life is maintained. And my question at this point is, how if if they're progressing or if their overall survival is that you know progression free survival isn't a lot. Why is them their overall quality of life maintained? Just does it go into that?
0: It doesn't really. It just sort of presents the data. And I did have a bit of a fish around as to why. My gut feeling though is that a, a number of these patients were ha, continued on treatment beyond progression as as it was allowed. If there was deemed a clinical benefit, so these patients who were getting a quality of life benefit would have continued. And whether the atizobev slowed and otherwise potentially rapid progression, and therefore enabled patients to maintain functionality for longer, I, I honestly don't know. But the differences in the in the groups, and and basically what it, what it amounts to is patients were given a questionnaire and asked basically how they're feeling in in a number of uh, areas and so the da- the differences in the data in the quality of life data is is quite marked Assuming. so for example yeah it really is so phys- physical function which is another thing that they assessed 13.1 months versus 4.9 months in the serafinib group so patients in Atezo bev group are maintaining what they would deem an adequate physical function almost three or uh, over three times Almost three times. Longer. I can do maths. What are you talking about? <laughs> Your maths is as good as mine. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely got into this job for the maths. Uh, almost three times longer than in the seraphinib group.
1: Think, do you and think patients- it's also... Sorry. So do you think it's also the diarrhoea component? Because I, I vaguely remember when I treated people with seraphinib. Diarrhoea was always this problem.
0: Well, not just necessarily the diarrhoea. The, th- the other problem that I've had with seraphimib is the hypertension. Yeah, which- definitely. Which you know is is not as big a feature as uh, bevacizumab. We know that we're very alert with the with bevacizumab causing hypertension, but the times that I have seen it, it is it is debilitating. People have headaches, you know, they have exacerbations of pre-existing cardiac disease, they have renal impairment, and all of the uh, the problems related to that. So it is it can be a big problem. And I think the diarrhea obviously is a much more visceral problem. You know, it's a huge impact in patient's quality of life when they have to go to the toilet every five minutes. Yep. So you, that is almost certainly another uh, thing that's adding into this, but it's the, the data is there and, and it's very suggestive of not just a uh, outcome benefit, but a quality of life benefit, which I think is, is very good data to have, especially when you're trying to sell the patient on this. Uh, I don't know if you really have to sell them it's it's a great it's a great option. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And and you know, uh, some patients, you know, and and Josh you've probably had this as well. Some patients say, "Well, I'm going to take this treatment. I might live longer, but is it actually going to make me feel better?" And in in this case, you can sort of point to this and say, "Well, the evidence is that it will make you feel better for longer."
1: That's exactly it. With with these subset of cancers, there there is a conversation that has to be had about, I can make you live longer, but if you're stuck in bed, it's terrible. And Mm -hmm. I feel bad, Michael. I've made you digress so much when you're talking about your results. And I think we've just gone to adverse effects because I was like, I'm interested about this. Uh, But did you, want, did you want to go back and sort of finish off your, your summary of outcomes?
0: No, 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 I was done. That was pretty much Leave done. That. I was actually, I, I, I was just going to talk about uh, some subgroup analysis where the benefit was slightly less clear because I suspect this is a case of, this is an illustrative case of how subgroup analysis frequently don't tell the whole, whole story because the subgroups where the benefit was less clear. And these are, I've selected the subgroups where there were a decent number of patients. So we can't use the age-old excuse, oh, there were three patients. Um, there were four the this subgroup. time. Not this time. Not this time. But the, the subgroups that the benefit was less clear on didn't seem to make too much sense to me. So benefit was less clear in patients who had who were ECOG zero, who had a high alpha-feta protein of greater than 400 nanograms per milliliter. So... Very elevated, potentially corresponding to burden of disease. No extrahepatic spread and non-viral disease etiology. Now, I can't really thread the needle as to why atezobev appeared to be less uh, beneficial in in these sorts of patients because it's sort of patients who are fitter but also might have worse disease, but also might have better disease. It doesn't really make much sense. And so, what I've the the lesson I've taken from this is that subgroup analysis are frequently fraught with difficulties when you try try to come to interpret them and shouldn't really color your uh, assessment of the overall benefit unless the difference is is striking or explainable
1: 100%. I think maybe this is my hypothesis of the situation. If you've got hepatitis B induced hepatocellular carcinoma, you have the mechanism. You know why they've got the cancer. If their cancer is due to a different etiology, you did you did mention it. maybe it is more aggressive maybe the pattern of spread in non-hepatitis B related HCC is more localized to the actual liver itself rather than extracapsular spread and given that you get different outcomes depending on the pathophysiology of the cancer's aggressiveness and things that we probably don't yet truly understand
0: it's possible i guess the other thing as well potentially in terms of sort of focusing on the non viral disease uh, subgroup is that viral disease uh, viral hepatitis induced cirrhosis is theoretically treatable you can treat the virus as we've said we're awful at this point as far as i'm aware now i'm no gastroenterologist so there might have been some new updates but Not nash yet. cirrhosis yeah, yet nash cirrhosis autoimmune hepatitis those sorts of things we're still very there's still a very, very challenging uh, set of conditions to treat. And so the survival impairment might not necessarily be from the cancer. It might be from the fact that their liver is finally giving up the ghost because we're not managing the underlying cause.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great hypothesis. We should work on
0: doing our PhDs on that. <laughs> well, if you can do a PhD on anything, you can definitely do one on that. Um, in terms of safety, because Josh, I know you're you're eager to hear about this. Uh, the, in, I, I'm just going to focus on the grade three to four events. They're broadly similar across the across the group. The main grade three to four event was hypertension, as we've mentioned, and this is where the varices questions come in, come back into the four, which we put aside briefly before. The, we know that hypertension, and particularly portal hypertension, obviously, is a major risk factor for the development and, their, and subsequent bleeding of varices. So it is very important when you're starting these patients on bevacizumab or to a lesser extent serafinib, but bevacizumab especially, that there is a structure involved that they can get their regular surveillance scopes for for, for variceal uh, monitoring. Because the last thing you want is for someone to develop an burst of varices related to portal hypertension that has been made worse by the administration of of your yeah, bevacizumab so that's that just something disaster, to keep in the back yeah. of your mind yeah absolute disaster uh, and it can be very difficult to get a whole uh, get uh, under control
1: i think it's also it's a case of this that with my patients sometimes we delay commencing treatment even if it's a couple of weeks in this situation to make sure that they can have the Beb and the TSO because you don't want to get them in hospital, end up delaying everything by months, and then the outcome is definitely going to be poorer in that situation. But a couple of weeks difference between commencing treatment is not going to change overall survival or PFS.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think if you hit, hit, hit upon one of the tenants of oncology, Josh, which is try and get all of your ducks in a row to start with, knowing that prolonged hospitalizations, prolonged delays are going to have significant impairments in outcomes. And so if you get things like, in this case, surveillance scopes, hepatitis screening, treatment of viruses, all that sort of stuff, if you get that all done, even if it takes you a couple of weeks, it's going to save you and more importantly, the patient, a lot of grief, a lot of morbidity, a lot of mortality down the road. You're not impairing their outcomes because, as as we have said before, immunotherapy tends to take a couple of months before it starts to work. So you're not going to be significantly impairing outcomes, but you will save the patient a lot of grief if you address these sorts of reversible things first. As
1: they say, proper planning prevents piss-poor performance. I've always wanted to say that on a podcast, so here we are.
0: There we go. Josh's life mission has been fulfilled, and now he's, I'm he's just I going entire. to... He's gonna he's gonna ride off into the sunset. Pretty much. <laughs> the uh, the adverse events otherwise they're pretty standard. So the most common adverse events of special interest related to the atezolizumab were hepatitis, rash, and thyroid axis issues, hyper or hypothyroidism. In terms of bevacizumab, hypertension, bleeding, and hemorrhage, six percent of which was grade three to four. Uh, in severity and proteinuria which we know is a a area of monitoring for bevacizumab uh, renal uh, hypertension induced nephropathy they were all present but none of this data is new
1: so mikey if you had to summarize this trial in two sentences with some numerical values so josh can remember give it to me in two sentences what what's your what's your assessment
0: This is Josh's way of saying that he's sick of listening to my voice. No, you're
1: not voice. I I, I might might edit that out, but I might not.
0: (laughs) If I was going to summarize this sentence in two sentences, I would say Atizo Bev almost doubles overall survival. It triples almost um, quality of life preservation. And it. Really does appear to be a best first line therapy for um, hepatocellular carcinoma, with a few caveats in the clinical space.
1: That's a great summary, and I will briefly summarise my trial of Topaz as well. Just so if people went ahead to the fifty-four minute mark, they can now summarise this whole discussion in thirty seconds. <laughs> they've already
0: really they've skip. already skipped ahead, yeah. <laughs> To to yeah, to me,
1: no. <laughs> the median the median overall survival that were found with davamab gemcitabine and cisplatin versus the control arm of just chemotherapy in TOPAZ one shows that median overall survival twelve point eight months versus eleven point five months in the control arm with a hazard ratio of zero point eight. So an improvement, but more. More information is needed moving forward to see if we can make that more significant as the Kappa Maya curves diverge. And with progression-free survival, again, we see an improvement in the intervention arm with map, which is 7.2 months versus 5.7 months. This is a difference between going to your kid's wedding or not. So these months, although they look small, are really imperative. And I think that's really concluding the Topaz one.
0: Mm. Very nice packaging there, Josh. Thank you. On an optimistic mo- note. On on an optimi- optimistic note. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that we should uh, wrap it up before Josh starts complaining about listening to my voice anymore. Thank you very much for listening. Join us next week where we'll be talking about metastatic bladder cancer and taking yet another deep dive into the wonder wonderful world of immunotherapy. And I cannot guarantee that Darth Vader might not make an imp- uh, a appearance. We'll have to wait and see.
1: I can't wait.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks, Josh. (laughs) And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week.
1: See you then. Bye. Bye.